for some time, years actually, called God is Not Fair. And Ed just preached my sermon. Some really good lessons. That was marvelous. Really helps us to realize that, you know, we go through life wanting life to be fair, but it often, fortunately for us, is not. If God was fair, we would get what we deserve, and we sure don't want that. Uh, coinciding with this, not planned at all, I had asked Jonathan to, Ed's son, to read the, the uh, scripture today as we, as we begin. And he's been practicing, so I want you to all join him as we go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. I'm just going to get him to read that, and you guys can turn on that mic there. Good morning. Good morning. Right, I'm going to read um, 1 John 5, 12 through 13. So, here it goes. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that. You have eternal life. Very good. Thank you, John. All right. Very well done. Thank you, Jonathan. I've been wanting to get him to help me for a while. He's been wanting to. And so I said, well, you've got to practice this. And he sure did. And he did a marvelous job. Thank you. So I hope you've turned to First John chapter 5. Or should all be there. And you may even know that by heart as we've come to verse 13. You know, the, there's a saying that goes something like, without life, we have nothing. And we understand that physically. But my question is, do we understand that spiritually? You know, in physical death, we lose thought. We lose feelings, physically speaking, our personality. There's no ability of any kind of actions or words. We can no longer influence others. We can no longer help. We can no longer teach. We can no longer learn. And so we have that one word that's really not a nice word. We don't like to hear the word. Dead. And so Paul summed that up, spiritually speaking, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, when he said, once we were dead. Once we were dead in our trespasses, in sins. And then interestingly, he says, in which you used to live. You used to live in a state of death. And then he, he kind of explains it, begins to explain it, following the ways of this world. As we follow the ways of the world, or as we once followed the ways of the world, as Paul is saying... He said, I can only describe you as dead. And I was thinking of that spiritually. What does that mean? Just the parallel to physical death. We don't think right. We don't act right. We don't feel right. Our personalities are warped. We lose the ability to act in the right way and say the right things. We really can't influence others. Or help others or teach others towards spiritual things. We're unable to learn. In one word, we're dead, 
spiritually. So, you know, our only hope is a resurrection, a spiritual resurrection. And in this book that we've been looking at, he calls it being born of God, born again, a new birth. So we begin this new birth, we begin this spiritual life. We're born of God. We have a new type of life now. And so we're now able to learn and able to think correctly. We're able to even feel correctly. Our personalities blossom. We can do the right things. We can help others. We know what to teach as we learn more and more. In one word, we now have life. You know, this one view shows, as, we've, as we're approaching the end of this, this letter, shows John's primary purpose his ultimate aim in writing this letter, and he sums it all up in this one neat little expression in verse 13. And I want us to look at that in the context of verse 12, once again where he says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And isn't that what we want? Life. And then he says, I write these things to you, to, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You know where I'm going to go on this, if you've been here very long. What is he talking about here? The purpose. <laughs> Again, he's coming back to the purposes of his writing. We saw this very early in the book. John has specific purposes uh, for which he wrote this little letter. And it was a re- revelation to me. I've, I, in the past, have struggled with this letter. I've read it. it. The style of writing, the circular type of writing, the nonlinear, you know, it's very difficult to outline this particular little letter. It, it's an Eastern thought more than a Western thought. And so it was difficult. At least it was for me. And one thing that always, you know, you have to be careful with commentaries because commentaries can lead you down a way of thinking that sometimes it's like it's maybe not the way it should go. And so almost every commentary, if you read a commentary on the on this on this letter, it will talk about Gnosticism and pre-Gnosticism and things like that. And you go, what in the world is that talking about? Well, don't even worry about it. Just read the scriptures. And that's where I went to. I kept reading it over and over, trying to figure, figure out what, what is this little book talking about? And so he, it, was, it just opened my eyes as I read through this that he gives us three reasons. He says, I'm going to tell you why I wrote this book. And if you can grasp this, then you'll begin to understand the meaning of this book. So in chapter 1, verse 4, I bet you about half of you have memorized this by now. Chapter 1, verse 4, he says... I wrote, wrote this so that you, that you will have joy. And the way he says it, to the full, some of your versions say, filled up with joy, overflowing with joy. And so as we read through this, we look at the, the, the letter here and we say, this letter should cause us to have joy. And if we don't, then we're misreading the letter. We're, we're misapplying the letter. We're not putting it into practice or something because that's the purpose, one of the purposes a second pers- purpose, he said, he said, so that you will not sin. This is one of John's goal. He's not let, just saying, well, you can do whatever you want to and have a good time. No, he's saying this letter 
For you to have joy, you have to learn how not to sin. And so he begins to tell us more about that. And now we come to the end of the letter. That was at the beginning, the first part of the letter. Now we come right to the end. And he's looking back and he says, I wrote this to you. I've been writing this to you so that you will know that you have eternal life. And so as we read through this letter over and over, we should be saying joy and not sinning and knowing. You know, what, what's all going on here? What is John trying to help us with? And again, he had, this isn't the first time he sprung this on us, is it? I counted 37 times that he used this word no. I want you to know this. So all through the letter he's been saying no, 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 no. K-N-O-W, not N-O. I want you to know this. And tied up in that, in our English, it's one word, the word no. In the Greek, it's two different words. Two different words that are very, very similar, but there, there's a little nuance difference. One of these words means that you know through experience. Or if it's with another person, you have an active relationship with them. And we know, we know how that works, don't we? You may, get to, you may be introduced to someone, and so you know their name. You know maybe where they're from. You just know just very little about them. And if you build a relationship, you start getting to know them. We use those expressions. You get to know them better. You get to know their personality. You get to know what sets them off. And you get to know what brings them happiness. And you get to know how their personality works. That's one of these no's. The second no means that you've gained a knowledge in your mind. You've learned something. You've observed something. And you now know it because you've looked at it, you've studied it, you've, you, it's, it's almost like saying you have book knowledge. It's not quite that, it's that to a degree, but it's more than just book knowledge. It's not just uh, cold knowledge, but it's a type of knowing in your, in your mind. And yet the other one's more practical, getting your hands dirty type knowing. I know this because I've experienced it. Uh, and I've given the illustration. I, can't, I cannot do this anymore. I open up the, my car engines, my, the hood of my car. I was almost said the bonnet, the hood of my car. And I look in there and I no longer know where the spark plugs are. I used to know where spark plugs were. I used to work on an old 51 Ford pickup that I had in high school. And you could just, they were there. My dad taught me how to change spark plugs. And so I knew it by searing it and by, you know, by you can read it, but you really don't know it until you put that spark plug wrench in there and you rack up your knuckles a few times. And then you really know how to change spark plugs. So it's this kind of these two kind of nose. And there's a little difference, but we can't draw too much of a distinction between the two because they're somewhat interchangeable. They're somewhat synonymous with each other. In this particular verse, though, he's using this second word, this knowing in your mind. And I think what he's saying is this. You may not have the full experience of this knowledge, but it's something you know because you've seen the evidence. You have some absolute and final information. You have, you have all the information you need to know that you have eternal life. And the form of the verb here is that you will successfully, fully, effectively know. It's not just it's in your brain, but it's you, you really know this. I've given you, John has said, I've given you all the information that you need to know 
to know. So you can know. And guess what? This is not the last time he's going to use these words. (laughs) It isn't over. Five more times in the rest of this little book, he's going to use that word, no. And you can read ahead if you want to, and you'll see him there. Five more times he's going to use that word, no. You think it's important to John? I think it is. So let's look at what we know. It's good good for us to know. It's important for us to know. Because God wants us to know. God wants to know that you know. It's important for us to remember. I don't know about, I I know about you. I do know this. We all struggle with our memory. We all struggle with really knowing because we often forget. We often forget what we know. This is a true story. I don't know the people. I read the story and it was told true. This is a true story. There's a little boy. He's about two years old. And he got lost. And of course... You're a parent. We've all lost our children for 30 seconds to, you know, longer. And we lose those children. We panic, you know, and they went. They could not find this little two-year-old. And so they had to gather the neighbors and help us look for this child. They were panicked. And it wasn't long. They found the child just, you know, playing in the yard, hiding behind somewhere. But they found the child. And <sighs> but that, that time, that short amount of time when they were panicked, They looked. They didn't know where the child was. It was intense. They called neighbors. They called friends to try and find this child. Later on, the mother was telling the story to another person, another friend that wasn't there at the time. And she began to tell the story. And the little two-year-old was sitting there listening to the story of his own lostness when he was lost. And she kept talking about this. And he was just in the story. And she was talking about the horror of losing her child, not knowing where he was. At all. And, and, and he suddenly inter- interrupts and says, but mommy, mommy, did you ever find me? <laughs> and that's the way we are. We are like the little child who was lost and now was found. But we get all wrapped up and all caught up in the story of life that we're living right now. And we just we cry out sometimes. But has God saved me? Where, where have you have you found me yet? And we're distracted by life. We're distracted by the things going on. We forget that we've been found. We forget that we've been saved. And he says, no, you're, you're found. Mommy, yeah, we found you. You're safe. You know, God has told us a lot of things. And we either forget them. Sometimes I think we forget them. And sometimes I think we just don't believe them. I've said this over and over. It's too good to be true, isn't it? I mean, part of Ed's prayer, when he was talking about how unfair it is, how unfair life is, in a good way, and how God took our place. Why did he do that? That wasn't the fair thing to do, but he did that for us. And it's so good. It's so good, it's hard for us to really believe that. Sometimes our faith is weak. Sometimes it's absent. Momentarily, it's not permanently absent, maybe, but momentarily, sometimes our faith just, we, we miss it. We forget. Our faith is weak. And we can, we can thank God for his patience with us. Just read the Gospels and see how patient Jesus was with the disciples in their weak faith. Let's look at some of the things that we've seen up to this time. We're just going to read them quickly just to remind us. 
the things that John has told us that we know. Starting in chapter two, he says, we know we have come to know him. We know we have come to know him. And then he even tells us, he gives us, uh, tells us how, if we obey him, if we're obeying him, we know that we know. We know Jesus and the Father, and I'm not going to read the scriptures there. We know it's the last hour. We know the truth. There you go. Let's go into four. There it is. We know that Jesus is righteous. And you know those who do right are born of him. You know this. We know the reason the world does not know us. Why? Because it did not know him. We know one day we'll be like him. We know why Christ came to take away our sins. We know we've passed from death to life because we love. You know no murderer has eternal life in him. How you know what love is? We know that. Jesus laid down his life for us. That's how we know it. How you know you belong to the truth? Because you love. We know that God knows everything. How we know he lives in us? By the spirit he gave us. How you know the spirit of God? By those who acknowledge Jesus. Whoever knows God listens to John's testimony, chapter 4. Everyone who loves has been born of God and they know God. We know he lives in us and we live in him. We know and rely on the love of God. And this is how we know. We love the children of God. And then in this verse that we just read, he wrote all this so that you may know that you have eternal life. So many things we know. And you may say, well, you know, I don't really remember the details of that. I wish I knew more. Well, go ask the people upstairs. I'll give you the sermon. I have at least an hour on it. <laughs> and we can remind ourselves how we know these things or why we know these things. Or how we can truly know them. And interestingly, there's three things we don't know. He says, if you hate, you don't know where you're going. You're stumbling and bumbling. If you're, if you're living your life practicing hate instead of practicing love, you don't know where you're going. You're going the wrong direction. You know that those who continue to sin don't know them. If that's the goal of your life, the purpose of your life is to live in a continuous state of sin, you, you don't know God. You know, the very thing as you get to know God... The opposite will happen. As you get to know him, you'll say, I don't want to do certain things. Some of the things that, used to, that I used to have a desire to do, they're fading now. They're going away. I don't have that desire anymore because you don't want to continue to, to, continue to sin. And if you, do not, if you do not love, you don't know God. Those are three things that we don't know. And all these no's are summed up in this last verse here that we're looking at of chapter uh, near the end, chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I wrote this so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you will one day have eternal life, not, they, not that someday you'll go to heaven eternal life. This is that you know that you presently, currently possess eternal life. That's what we know. But how do we know? How do we know this? Well, first of all, and we've touched on all this, this is more of a review than anything. We know knowledge is based in faith. We know things because it's based in faith. I know by faith. And this is not blind faith. A lot of times I think we automatically have been conditioned by the world to think faith is blind faith. This is close my eyes and jump into the, 
in, off the edge of the cliff faith. This is, not, this is not what faith is in the Bible. Not at all. It's not a mindless faith. It's not a thoughtless faith. It's a faith that's based in fact. We have some fact, and based on those facts, we have faith. Faith is not a vague hope. It's not a whiny, oh, I really hope this is true. I want it to be true. I hope it's true. I hope there's really a God. I hope that he loves me. I, I, I hope that, that he really did die for me, but I really don't know. It's not that kind of hope. It's confirmed in our experience. We, we begin to put these things into practice that he says, and we say, oh, I see how this works. So our faith is confirmed because it's based on some facts that we've looked at, and then it's confirmed in our experience. We go, oh, now I see how it works. You see, faith is not weak, not Christian faith. It's powerful. It's based in not fiction, but it's based in fact. Hebrews chapter 11 Verse 1 brings us out. He says, faith, this is what faith is. Being, being sure of what we hope for. And this is not this vague hope. This is a confident expectation. We know what's ahead. We, we're not there yet, but we know it. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Sure, certain, there's no doubt in those words. I'm sure of this. I'm certain of this. And why? Because faith is based in fact. It's not based in some theory. It's not based in philosophy. It's not even based in what I would call a vague theology. The evidence of God's existence is abundant. It's abundant. We don't have the time. I mean, we could spend weeks, a class on a Wednesday night, we could just go through all the Physical evidence of God's existence is all around us, is abundantly clear. The evidence of his love is clear through his son. I mean, he sends his son. He says, look, there's my evidence for you to see. You see how he acts. You see what he did. You saw how he taught. You saw how he died for us. And then when we put that faith into practice, when we start doing what he says, when we read the scriptures and we start putting this into practice, is all confirmed in our experience. We go, yes, this does work. Everyone places their faith in something. There's no faithless person. Every person puts their faith in something or someone. And a question you need to ask yourself is, how's this working out in my life? Because I'm putting my faith in something or someone, some philosophy, some thought, some whatever. And it might be mindless. You might have a mindless faith where you're just drifting with the world and say, no, I'm just, I'm just living. You're putting your faith in something. Julie and I do a lot of counseling. Very, very, well, every, every time we talk with someone, we tell them, this is what you need to do. Not our first time together. First time together, we hear what they've been doing. And then as we develop a relationship and talk to them, we end up saying in, in a longer Long, more words than this. This is what you need to do. Do this and it will solve your problem. But we don't tell them to do this based on our own confidence. Not because of our own trial and error. Oh, this worked for us, so we're telling you now what to do. I'm not telling people what to do based on a new psychological technique that I read or something out of a psychological book, psychology book. 
but it's based on God's word. We take God's word and we apply it to your situation, what's going on. And in confidence, we can say, do it. Just do it. I love this picture. I've shown it, I think, a couple of times. One of my favorite pictures. I love that little boy, how he's standing. He's, you can tell he is ready to just do it. And I think, oh, poor child. <laughs> he's going to go down. That, you know, he's just thinking all the way to the end of that pier. Just do it. But, you know, that's how life is sometimes. When we tell people who are in the practice and the habit of doing it wrong, and we say, look, this is what the Scripture says. Just do this. You do this, and it's going to work out. And when we respond in faith, when we look at the Scriptures and we say, okay, I'll do it, we find out it works. It increases our faith. Many times, almost, really I could say almost all problems are rooted in selfishness. And sometimes our, our relationships are all messed up because each party has a, a, a degree of selfishness that's going on here. We're struggling with our own self. And as we struggle with that, we'll, we'll go to the Scripture and say, you know, we just need to put that aside. You need to stop thinking. And without fail, when people begin to say, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try and serve the other person in love. You know, the world says that doesn't work. Get your way. But the scripture says serve one another in love. And then when we do it, we find out, ah, there's peace in the home. Things are working. This is the way it's supposed to be. Surprise. <laughs> we're just obeying what God says. And so that's what faith is. When we're looking at the scriptures and we see what to do, just do it. Do what it says. If it's possible to know and we don't know, what's the problem? You know, obviously we don't want to be presumptuous. We don't want to come across prideful. We don't want to come across cocky and say, you know, I know I'm saved. I know I am. In a cocky, prideful way. The Pharisees seem to be quite sure of themselves. Jesus called them children of the devil. And yet they, they spoke with confidence. They said, well, I know. And so we look at that and say, you know, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to say I know and yet be like the Pharisees and be called the child of, a, of Satan. Over in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 is one of the passages where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many, many miracles? Then I'll say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And so we look at that passage and we say, well, I don't want to have... That kind of knowledge. And so we look at this and say, well, what, what's going on here? I think, again, we've gone through this over and over with, with John. It's being me-centered instead of Christ-centered. We're, we're looking at ourselves instead of looking at God. He says here, not everyone who says these things, they're going, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. But only he who does the will of my Father. What's the will of my Father? I think a lot of times we read that and we say, well, give me the list of what your will is. What's all the things I need to do in order to be not to be this kind of person? What's, what's your will? I'm not going to go to First John to tell you what the will is, even though I have over and over. 
I'm going to the Gospel of John to tell you what the will is. In the Gospel of John, because he says it in a very concise and easy way, John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29. So people come to Jesus and they ask him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Just, just think about that. What are the works we must do? What must we do to do the works God requires? I want to know what God wants of me. I want to know what's required. I want to do it. What do we need to do? Give me the list. Jesus does. The work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. You know, we say, give me the list so we, we can do the list. Let me do the list. Where's my center? Where's my focus? On me. What I need to do. So we go to Jesus like this and say, just tell me what to do in order to do the work God requires. What does God require? And Jesus says, here it is. Believe in the one he sent. Yeah, but tell me what to do. Believe in the one he sent. I don't feel good. If I could just do the right things, if I could just, if I could have my checklist, if I could just go down and say, I've done the 10 things, I've done the 12 things, I've done it most of the time. I, I mean, I, I've been giving a tenth of my you know, income to the church. I, I've done this. I've, we feel good sometimes when we do those things. And Jesus just simply says, here it is. Believe in the one he sent. If you turn over the same chapter, verse 40, same context. He says, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. I want eternal life. I want eternal life that begins now and goes on forever. I want eternal life. What do I need to do? And it doesn't, I, I think we, we just struggle with this because it's so easy. It's so hard. It's so simple. And it's so difficult. And it's so him focused. Maybe that's why it's difficult and hard. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. That's what we do. Christ centered living is recognizing that salvation is God's gift to me and that salvation is only in Christ. That's Christ-centered living. The Pharisees' problem was their confidence arose from their own ability to do right. These folks could do right. They could do the right things. I have read, I have heard that these that in a Pharisee's home, by the time that your bar mitzvah came up, which was around 12 or 13 years old, these children knew by heart Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and most of Psalms. Can you believe that? They could quote the Scripture better than anyone in this room could quote the Scripture. They could just go through it from Genesis, all the Torah. They knew it. And they discussed it, and they asked questions. And they marveled at Jesus when he answered, and the way he asked questions and answered questions around his bar mitzvah time. They just couldn't believe that he knew so much and that he had such wise questions that they were asking. And so these men were confident 
They had an ability to do what was right. And then in Luke chapter 18, familiar passage. We love to tell our children this story in Bible class. It's a good one. But it's a good one for us adults to think about it and put it into practice. He tells the story, he says, to some who were confident in their own righteousness. Luke 18, verse 9. Confident in their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Jesus was a great storyteller. That's the best thing about Jesus, one of the best things about Jesus. He could take any situation and tell a great story and catch your attention. And we read it really quickly. We don't get into the story like we should. But he says, here's some people who were confident in their own righteousness. They looked down on everyone else. And he says, I'm, I'm going to tell you a story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. I tried to think what would be the parallel today, a preacher and a tax collector. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure what the parallel is there. But this, this extreme between these two, we have someone that we say, oh, this is a good church person and this, this, this guy is not a, you would never want to see this person in church kind of person. And so we have these two extremes and it says the Pharisee stood up and prayed. Some of your translations say about himself and some will say to himself. Word can be translated either way. He prayed about himself or he prayed to himself. And he thinks he's praying to God. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. And we look at that and we see how he says, focuses on himself, what he's doing. He's thankful he's not like other men. Is that wrong? I'm thankful I'm not like certain people. Is that wrong? And then he starts listening. I'm, I'm glad I'm not a robber, an adulterer, an evildoer. I'm glad I don't work for the IRS. <laughs> but, you know, the focus was so on himself. I'm not like everyone else. What am I like? Well, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I have. And he could have gone on and on all the things. Maybe he did. Maybe he continued. All the things that he did. All the right acts that he went. Confident in his own righteousness. And he said, the tax collector stood at a distance. And he would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Where was his focus? He'd listened to God. He was looking at God. He knew his rights. He knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he needed God. And that's what John has called us to. This whole letter and this whole gospel is to get us refocused where we need to be. It's not about me. It's not about the things I'm not. It's not about the things that I am. Yes, I want to put off some things and put on some things. Good. Why? Because I want to focus on Christ. Because that's the way he calls me to live. Not because it does anything for me. An uncertain Christian can't be bold sharing his faith. A Christian who is always concerned whether or not they're doing right, if they're right with God, is, is God okay with me? Is God not okay with me? What do I need to do? What do I not need to do? Has little to offer to other people. Dying to self simply means I realize that salvation has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with any kind of work that I perform. 
It has to do with the work that Jesus already did for me. Refocusing ourselves on, on Christ. Seeing what he's done for us. Putting our faith there. Putting our trust in that. And then living for him. Yes, we will clean up our act. We will stop doing certain things. But it's not so that I will be saved. It's because I am saved. It has nothing to do with cleaning up my sins. It's the recognition that the blood of Jesus cleanses me of my sins. One of the most powerful verses in 1 John, if not in the Bible, 1 John 1, 7, is just realizing the blood of Jesus continually cleanses me of my sin. And like Ed was saying, it's not fair. Why did he do that? It's not fair. But I'm sure glad he's not fair. Then it's because of a Christ-centered life, a Christ-centered faith, a Christ-centered acknowledgement that his righteousness is living in me. I begin doing the right things. I stop sinning. Joy comes. I know. I know I have eternal life. I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. I'm not spending a lot of time there at all. just want to point this out because I've pointed it out in the past. In the name of the Son of God. That's not saying if I say Jesus over and over, something good is going to happen. All right. A lot of people think that just the, the, the physical name of Jesus does something magic. It doesn't. All right. Jesus was a common name in the first century. It, it was Joshua in the in the Greek. So it's not the name of Jesus in that sense. But it means this. It's talking about the character. I write to you who believe in the character of the Son of God, who the Son of God was. That's why we go to the scriptures and we look at this and say, well, who was he? That's why when I read this passage uh, from Luke and I see Jesus telling these stories and I see how he pulls things out and I see his character and I see how he treats people and I treat, see what he teaches. Then I say, this person was special, more than special. I am convinced he was the son of God. And so I believe in this person, the, the personality, the person himself. The character of Jesus, the Son of God. And so I ask you this. Have you examined the character of Jesus? Have you relied on him? Do you trust in him? Do you place your faith in him? If you do, you have eternal life. You say, well, I have a long ways to go. Yes, you do. So do I. Where's your focus? Your long way to go or, or on who saves you? I wish that I hadn't done this in the past. Great. Join the crowd. But where's your focus? What you've done in the past or who saves you? I wish I was more gifted in this area. I wish I could do this. I wish I was more influential to other people. Good. So do I. But is that where your focus is? The classes you've taught or not taught, the people you've reached out to or not reached out to, where's your focus? Is it on you or is it in the character, the person of Jesus and what he's done for you. If you're Christ-centered, you know you have eternal life. I've said this before. Get up to heaven. If God asked me, why in the world should I let you in? I have one answer. Jesus. That's it. If he says, how many times do you go to church? I have no idea. A whole bunch. If he asks, how many people did you reach out to? I don't know. 
Were you good to your wife? Ask her. <laughs> Were you a good father? Were you a good friend? If, I, if any of that relies on my salvation, I am lost. I have no hope. No hope. Because I've messed up too many times. The only hope I have if I stand, if God asks me. I hope he doesn't ask me. I hope he just says, <laughs> blood of Jesus, folks. Get through there. That's all I have. And if we focus our lives on that, if that's where our focus is, we'll learn how to live in this eternal life that we've already been given. If our focus is anywhere else, you may have eternal life, but you're not living it out in your life. And so I invite you, if you're a Christian and you're in that situation, 